Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, we continue our series on creation, our series from Genesis. A few weeks back, we actually broke into Genesis 1.1, and we beheld the glory of our eternal Creator God. And then we beheld the first day. The day that God created light, the God of light said, let there be light and there was light. And we had the first day, the first 24 hour day. Verse six through eight, small portion of Genesis chapter one is our passage for today, but I'm going to read beginning of verse 1 down through verse 8. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Dear saints, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The eternal God created space, time, and matter in an instant. And then he began day by day to set up our week until Christ should return and destroy the heavens and earth and recreate them in an instant. And we abide by that week. We live in that week, a six-day work week the Lord established and a seventh day of rest, the Sabbath. To reset where we are, to remind us of some of the basic truths that we've covered, I want to outline Again, where we're at. Basically, there are two worldviews. The eternal creator or an eternal cosmos. It all boils down to that. We have an eternal creator God or an eternal uncreated cosmos. The 5th century B.C. philosopher Parmenides popularized the truth statement ex nihilo nihil fit, which literally Translated from Latin means out of nothing, nothing comes. Christians have no difficulty with that maxim. The eternal, self-existent, all-powerful, all-wise, holy, triune God created everything without pre-existing material, out of nothing, literally ex nihilo, in six literal days. The one true God is unlike the fictitious idols that man created. Mankind's idols did not create everything from nothing. They are said to merely fashion and shape the eternal material universe. God alone 
created space, time, and matter about 6,000 years ago. God created a mature universe with the appearance of age, just like He created birds, not eggs. Just like He created a man and a woman, not a bouncing baby boy and a pink, cuddly baby girl. All of God's creation was good. There was no sin or death. Survival of the fittest, millions of years of death and struggle did not create the species. God created a vast array of life forms for His own glory in accordance with His own wisdom to procreate after their kind. And that's exactly what we see out there in creation. I won't just call it nature. I'll call it creation. For that's what it is. Ex nihilo nihil fit, the laws of causality, the law of probability, the law of biogenesis, the second law of thermodynamics, and the theory of information that should be a law, all confirm the biblical worldview. All true science does. Any law and all laws of every kind confirm the biblical worldview. The immaterial laws that govern the material universe so that we might know the universal truth of mathematics, for instance. The immaterial, universal, invariant laws of logic that govern immaterial thought so that we might know good thought from bad thought or truth from insanity. And the immaterial, universal, invariant laws of morality that govern thought and deeds all confirm the biblical worldview. All true science confirms the biblical worldview. The very concept of truth upon which science is built demands and confirms the biblical worldview. Without the God of truth, the God of the Bible, you're left with absurdity. You have no path to truth. The God, our God, is the God of truth. All truth is His. Without Him, it's impossible to have truth. Unless you know everything, all that you think that you know may well be contradicted by the vast amount of information you don't know. Unless you know everything that there is to know, or you know the God who knows everything there is to know, and He has revealed some truth to you, you can't know anything. Truth is that which comports to the mind of God revealed in His Word. We are the people of truth because we are the people of the God of truth, and He the God of truth has revealed some of this truth to us in Holy Scripture. One further reminder before we get into God's revealed truth from today's text of Scripture. This is not a debate between the spiritual versus the realist or the religious versus the irreligious. It's truth. And the true religion revealed by God versus absurdity and the false religion of atheism and its wicked offspring, naturalism, materialism, Big Bang cosmology, and evolutionism. It's an ism, saints. And so it's not religion versus irreligion and science. No, it's religion versus religion. It's a religion of truth born out of the revelation of the God of truth, Holy Scripture, versus a religion of absurdity born out of the wicked heart of man. Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. They have done no good thing. And so that is where we are. 
And that's what we're considering in Genesis. That's what God has revealed in Genesis. Pastor John MacArthur rightly said, there is one book, one book that comments on the book of Genesis of great note. One book that I would say is absolutely authoritative. And it's the only authoritative book, one true, infallible, inerrant, authoritative commentary that has been written on Genesis. And you might be scratching your head, did Pastor MacArthur write a commentary on Genesis? No, of course not. One unarguable divine book, one heavenly inspired commentary on Genesis that speaks with absolute authority is to be unchallenged in its truthfulness. And frankly, for me, this book forever settles the issue of the accuracy of Genesis. What book is it? It's the New Testament. The New Testament is the true, authoritative, God-given commentary on Genesis. And if you believe John 3.16, truly, then you believe the New Testament in its entirety, truly, which means you believe the Old Testament in its entirety, beginning with Genesis 1.1, truly, because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And you don't get to just pick the life, saints. You must take him for all that he is. Pastor MacArthur continues, it's the New Testament. It was not written by any scientist, not even a creation scientist. It was not written by theologians or a theologian. It was written by simple men who were given the words to write by God himself. So the creator is the author. You have in Genesis the account of creation. You have in the New Testament the creator's inspired commentary on the Genesis record. If you go to the New Testament, you will find there's an affirmation there of six-day creation. There's an affirmation of divine fiat or instantaneous creation. There's an affirmation of man being made in the image of God, an affirmation of Adam being created, and then Eve. There's an affirmation of the fall there in very specific terms. There's an affirmation of the flood there in very specific terms. There's an affirmation of Noah and the surviving family of Noah All of the Genesis record is very carefully referred to by the inspired New Testament. If Jesus is your Lord, then Genesis is your truth. In an article written by Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, who has his PhD in chemistry, he wrote this. He opens with a question. The important thing is that God created it, isn't it? The important thing is that God created it. Let's not get into the details. Let's not try to declare and define and defend Genesis as being the actual account of God creating the heavens and the earth in six literal days. That question is often thrown out. Well, Dr. Jonathan Serfati answers that question. Ever had someone tell you, you're missing the whole point. The purpose of Genesis is to teach that God is our creator. We should not be divisive over the small details. Genesis teaches the theological truth of who and why, not about how and when, or else they say that the Bible's a book for faith and morality, not history. An obvious answer is, why should we trust Genesis when it says God created if we can't trust it on the details. After all, Jesus told Nicodemus, I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? John 3 verse 12. 
So if Genesis can't be trusted on an earthly thing, such as the earth's age, the sequence of the creative acts upon it, or the flood that covered it, then why trust it on heavenly things, such as who the Creator was? Also, if Genesis 1 were merely meant to tell us that God is Creator, then why simply not stop at verse 1, all that's necessary to state this? However, the critic has overlooked something even more important. Genesis is written as real history. This is why the rest of the Bible treats the events, people, and time sequences as real history. Not as parables, not as poetry, not as allegory. What does the rest of Scripture say? The age and unique creation of Adam and Eve mattered to Jesus. When teaching about marriage, Jesus said, But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Mark 10, verses 6 through 8. Jesus quoting Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. He quoted them about a real first man and first woman who became the first couple. This was the basis for marriage between one man and one woman. Not a man and a man, or a woman and a woman or more than two people. Evolution teaches instead that a whole population of humans evolved from a population of ape-like creatures. Also in the context of what Jesus quoted, the two become one flesh because Eve was taken from Adam's flesh and a man leaves his parents because Adam had none. Furthermore, Jesus said that Adam and Eve were there from the beginning of creation, not billions of years later. Jesus said Adam and Eve were there at the beginning Day six, to be exact. At the beginning of creation, God created Adam and Eve. Thus saith the Lord Jesus. Far too few Christians defend the foundation of marriage. The recent creation of Adam and Eve is Jesus taught. Then they wonder why sinful deviant acts such as adultery, fornication, and homosexual behavior are increasing even within the church. And so the... Age and unique creation of Adam and Eve matter to Jesus. Secondly, the time frame of the creation week matters to God. God Himself wrote the Ten Commandments with His finger. The fourth one is, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. The reason He, God, gave is, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and that's all that's in them, but He rested on the seventh day. Clearly, the time frame is important. Otherwise, this commandment is meaningless. And if the creation days were really long periods of time, then logically the days of the working week would have to be as well. But work for six billion years and rest for one billion years doesn't quite have the same ring to it, now does it? Adam's sin bringing death mattered to Paul's preaching of the gospel. Consider this one. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul explains the gospel as he taught these people and how central Jesus' resurrection is. And he explains why Jesus came to die. 1 Corinthians 15, 21, 22, and 45. It says, For since death came through a man, literally, Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, 
Adam, a life-giving spirit. Paul explains that the gospel is necessary because of the bad news that our ancestor Adam sinned and brought death to all people. Romans 5, 12 through 19 elucidates this. Thus the last Adam, Jesus, cured this by living a sinless life, dying for our sin and rising from the dead. Also, Jesus rose physically from the dead, rising from an empty tomb with flesh and bones, Luke 24, 39. So the death Adam brought must also have a physical component as shown by his return to the dust from which he was made. As Genesis 3.19, the curse foretold, from dust he came to dust he would go. All compromised views place death before Adam's sin, thus undermine the gospel. The gospel, as Paul preached it, was predicated upon a real Adam and the real history of Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. Next, Jesus' ancestry mattered to Luke. I haven't mentioned this yet in our series. In chapter 3 of his gospel, Luke traces Jesus' lineage from Mary all the way back to Adam. Jesus to Adam, saints. There is not the slightest hint of a break showing where historical characters end and mythical figures begin. All are treated as equally historical. None are mythical. This includes Adam himself, who was created directly by God, not through a long line of ape-like ancestors or pond scum. This is important for Paul's teaching in the above section. It is also vital for the atonement. The prophet Isaiah spoke of the coming Messiah as literally the kinsman redeemer, i.e. one who is related by blood to those who redeems, as used to describe Boaz in relation to Naomi and Ruth. The book of Hebrews also explains how Jesus took upon himself the nature of man to save mankind, but not angels. So only Adam's descendants can be saved because only thus can they be related by blood to the last Adam. You get that? We're all related. We are all descendants of Adam and Eve. And the Lord Jesus, through the line of Mary, is a descendant of Adam and Eve, miraculously conceived in her womb. Oh, yes, but he is the last Adam, he is the second Adam born without sin, that he might come to save sinners as a kinsman, redeemer, born of the line of Adam. So if anyone thinks that Genesis history doesn't matter, then ask how they should preach to the Australian Aborigines. If they have really been here for 40,000 years, then how could they come from Adam? And how could they be related to Christ? So how can they be saved? Indeed, the compromising clergymen of Darwin's day claimed the Aborigines had not evolved enough to preach the gospel to them. Don't even bother. Other Darwinists said they had not evolved enough to be considered human at all. So feel free to hunt them. And they did. Next, The doctor points us to Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel's reality mattered to John. The apostle John taught, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because of his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. 1 John 3.12 Literal Cain, literal Abel demands a literal Adam and a literal Eve and, of course, a literal fall. 
Thus, in teaching the church about good and evil, John accepted the very real history of Cain murdering Abel as an example of real evil. Jesus also believed that Abel was the first man whose blood was shed, and he taught that Abel's blood would come upon that unbelieving generation as surely as that of the other martyred prophets throughout Scripture in Matthew 23, verse 35. Also, Hebrews 11 lists Abel, Enoch, and Noah as heroes of faith in that hall of faith contained in Hebrews 11. Abel, Enoch, and Noah, heroes of faith. Next, the order of creation mattered to Paul. The order of creation mattered to Paul. Paul taught much about the role of men and women in the church. Paul justified it by citing the real history of Genesis. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 8, For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Thus Paul accepts the Genesis history that God created first Adam, who then named all land vertebrate animals that God had previously created. Then God made Eve from Adam's rib. She was not an evolved ape woman. Amen? Amen. However, later on, Paul points out, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Here Paul is following Genesis as well. For Adam named his wife Eve because she would become mother of all living. Genesis 3 verse 20. Paul repeats this even more directly in his instructions to his pupil Timothy in the pastoral epistles, particularly 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 13. Quote, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. In the next verse, Paul teaches that Genesis 3 is also real history. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell in the transgression. The order of creation mattered to Paul. And finally, Noah and the flood and the ark mattered to Peter. Jesus taught about the sudden reality of his future judgment by comparing it to the time of Noah. In Luke 17, verses 26 and 27, Jesus said, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Thus saith the Lord Jesus. Here, Jesus treats Noah as a real person, the ark as a real ship, and the flood as a real event that destroyed all people outside the ark. Peter likewise warned of a coming judgment by comparing it with the flood. He even said that one characteristic of scoffers was a willful ignorance of two things, the reality of special creation of the world out of water, or the land out of water, and its destruction by water. And he did this in 2 Peter 3. Verses 3 through 7. But if we deny that the flood was a real event, then logically the future judgment must be denied as well. If the flood was merely a local Mesopotamian flood, then people could have escaped simply by immigrating. Logically, sinners could escape the future wrath of the Son of Man just by keeping out of Iraq. These are only a few examples of where other Bible writers take Genesis as history. Indeed, the inspired writers treat the people, events, and times as real, not merely literary or theological devices. And the reality of the history is foundational to crucial teachings about faith 
and morality. Dr. Sarfati, a brilliant man, a brilliant man. Anything he's written is worth reading. We are on day two, the heavens. But I want it again, and I will throughout this series, until we get out of Genesis 1 and 2, I will be reminding you of the broader picture, bolstering you, strengthening you for the broader fight. Because the devil begins his assault on the God of truth in this book of truth, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, where God records the true account of his creative act. In days previous, we have thoroughly covered verses 1 through 5, Genesis 1, 1 through verse 5. Today we are in verse 6, 7, and 8. Day 2, the creation of the heavens. Let's read again verses 6 through 8. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Now at first glance, first blush, you might think there's just, there's just not that much there. How can we spend the remainder of our time on that, Pastor? Um, there's just not all that much there. But like every week in this series, and most weeks that I preach, but certainly in this series, it's not a matter of what I can find to put into the sermon. It's a matter of what I can bear to cut out. Because there's so much truth, there's so much depth there's so much going on, and there's such a struggle, a colossal struggle between dark and light, between the devil's lies and God's truth going on. And so, once again, I've had to cut out much that I would like to tell you because I want to keep day two to one day and not have a series on day two. But I want to encourage you to go deeper, I want to encourage you to use the resources. We have amazing resources online now. I want to encourage you to use those resources and to study out this word, this word, rakia, rakia. Now, someone's, someone's ability to enunciate Hebrew may far exceed my own, so I'll spell it for you, R-A-Q-I-A, in English, that's how we would spell it. But that's the Hebrew word for firmament. Preferment. Study out that word because the devil's assaulting that word. And I, over many, many years, have been privileged to carry the gospel out to the world. I've been privileged to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in the streets of Portland and, and many other cities. And many, many times, atheists will come up when I quote Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament right? And they say, what? The firmament shows his handiwork. Do you know what the firmament is? And the reason they're asking that is because for them, it's a strong point. For them, it's a go-to argument to undermine the entirety of God's word from the sixth verse of God's word. To their minds, the firmament cuts the legs out from under God's Word being inspired and inerrant and preserved, the very Word of God. And the word firmament makes this book to be a book of men, 
a book of ignorance put on display. And so they like to ask, do you know what firmament is? What do you believe the firmament is? And I want you to be prepared to answer that. You don't have to be able to pronounce the Hebrew, by the way. (laughs) You can use English. That's the language we speak. That's fine. But you need to know what God meant there in saying, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters and the waters. And you need to know what the atheists mean when they ask you what God meant. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. This firmament, this rakia. Unfortunately, not all the attacks upon God's Word come from outside of God's church. Some of them come from within God's church. The devil is crafty. He is wise for evil. And the best assaults come from within. If they come from without, we can readily discern, oh, that's, that's an attack. They're trying to beat down the wall. Um, that's, that's an attack. But if it's from within, from a smiling would-be brother who professes to believe upon Christ then we're more likely to entertain it and to consider it. But beware when would-be brothers come in agreeing with atheists in their arguments that are meant to cut the legs out from under our faith. You need to beware of such would-be brethren. One such brother, quote-unquote, is Paul H. Seeley. And James Patrick Holding takes him to account in an article titled, The Equivocal Language in the Cosmology of Genesis 1 and the Old Testament. And again, he poses a question. Is the Rakia firmament a solid dome? And that's the basic argument of the atheist, is that this Rakia, this firmament, is a solid dome. That God's Word says, let there be a solid dome, essentially over the earth. And There is a fairly universal ancient worldview, not just amongst the ancient Hebrews or or Middle Eastern tribes or peoples, but fairly universal. Even American Indians uh, believed in a concept of a dome that ultimately was over the earth. Even some a steel-like dome in which there were pinpricks, right? The stars in the heavens. And so they say, well, look, it's just the Bible adopting that disposition, that cosmology of the ancients. But that's not at all what it is, saints. That's not at all what it is. They make a a fairly good argument um, if you are ignorant of the Scriptures, but the Scriptures are quite clear. I'm just going to give you just a brief portion of James Patrick Holdings' refutation of Paul H. Seeley, but you can look it up in full. And it gets quite technical, more technical than I wanted to go into from the pulpit. But is the Rakia a solid dome? Is the firmament a solid dome? Is the Word of God upholding an ancient, ignorant cosmology? And the answer is no. James Patrick Holding says, Anti-Christian skeptics often denounce the Bible as teaching a faulty cosmology. One example is the assertion that the Hebrew word rakia or firmament in the King James Version denotes a solid dome over the earth. So the Bible is guilty of scientific error. 
Such enemies of the gospel have an ally in the professing evangelical Paul H. Seeley, who maintains that both the social background data and the text of the Bible itself support this conclusion. Seeley's conclusion is both presumptuous and untenable, and he fails to recognize the description of the Rekia is so equivocal and lacking in detail that one can only read a solid sky into the text by assuming that it is there in the first place. And so God's word is not specific. This is a general statement. You would have to assume that it's in there. You can't, you can't read it there. You've got to take the world's worldview into scripture to get it in there. And Generation after generation of Christians are guilty in one way or another. Our current Christian era does what? It takes evolution and shoves it into the scriptures. It takes Big Bang cosmology and shoves it into the scriptures. The ancients had no concept of Big Bang cosmology or evolution, and so they didn't shove that in there. But they did have a concept, which made sense, right? From a phenomenological experience, you're out in the night, and you look up, and there's a great blackness, and there's pinpricks in it. You know, I bet that's a dome up there, and there's holes in it, and the light shines through, right? That was their experience, That was their ignorance. But the Word of God does not support that. The Word of God speaks of stars. The Word of God speaks of God stretching out the heavens and creating the stars. The Word of God is not a book of ignorance. The Word of God tells us things about the circle of the earth long before science figured out the circle of the earth, saints. It tells us about the hydraulic cycle it tells us all sorts of scientific things while not being a book of science when it speaks to science it speaks accurately and it speaks before science man science ever figured it out getting back to james patrick holdings refutation he says seeley's conclusion is both presumptuous and untenable He fails to recognize the description of the Rekia is so equivocal and lacking in detail that one can only read a solid sky into the text by assuming that it's there in the first place. One can, however, justifiably understand Genesis to be in harmony with what we presently know about the nature of the heavens. It is common for skeptics to attack the Bible for teaching a primitive cosmology, including a flat earth. That is constant. That one is a is even more go-to than this Firmament Rekia article. Oh, you, you believe the Bible? You probably believe the earth is flat. Well, no one who actually has studied the Bible would say the earth is flat. Now, sadly, I must tell you, there are professing Christian flat earthers. That's to their shame because it's not the fruit of good Bible study or the fruit of scientific study outside of Bible study. Now, All science will conform to and comport to the truth of Scripture, all true science, but you've got to rightly divide the word of truth to begin with and not come up with some ignorance about the earth being flat. So it's common for skeptics to attack the Bible for teaching a primitive cosmology, including a flat earth and geocentrism. Geocentrism, the earth's at the center the solar system and the sun is revolving around it. Again, there's nothing in the Word of God that would justify that. They use these arguments to claim that the Bible cannot be the Word of God, rightly pointing out that God would not make errors in His Word. When I took Geology 101 in a secular college from Dr. Dorset with his white lab coat and Darwin fish on it with feet, right? Dr. Dorset opened the Bible 
and Geology 101 and said, look, Jesus said, have you not read that God created the male and female at the beginning? And I have just shown you through geology that the earth is 4.5 billion years old. Thus, Jesus is wrong. Thus, Jesus is not God. Thus, Jesus is not the Savior. This is Geology 101 in a secular college. That's how they do it, saints. So it's common for skeptics to attack the Bible. Oh, by the way, the end of the story. Since he went theological in a geological class, I raised my hand and said, Professor, you've just taken like an hour's time on theology and geology. I request equal time. And praise God, he gave it. And I got to stand and uplift the truth of Scripture. And the class rejoiced in it. Again, secular, non-Christian class. God blessed it. But truth prevailed. Truth prevailed. They use these arguments to claim that the Bible cannot be the Word of God, rightly pointing out that God would not make errors in His Word. Neither would Jesus, if He were truly God in the flesh, endorse erroneous teaching. However, such skeptical arguments against the Bible's cosmology have been repeatedly refuted by conservative Christians. More recently, the enemies of Christ have acquired an ally in the professing evangelical Paul H. Seeley, who has also claimed that the Bible makes scientific errors. Now, this is, this is these men trying to make peace with atheistic, naturalistic, materialistic, Big Bang cosmology and evolution. They want to give up everything, really. They want to give up the farm, but claim still that the Scriptures are inspired and they're inerrant and they're preserved. It's just in their inspiration and inerrancy, there are errors. The Lord has you know, recorded errors. He's recorded the worldview, the cosmology of the ancients, but He's recorded it accurately. So it's an, it's an inerrant error. That is not a biblical view, a proper view of inspiration, inerrancy, and preservation. And it completely, completely undermines the authority of God's Word. Do not support or adopt that view of inspiration, inerrancy, and preservation. It is a non-Christian view. And it leads you one step at a time out of the faith. You can't give up that kind of ground to atheism. And by the way, there is no actual scientific and certainly no theological, biblical justification to give up that ground. Not an inch of ground. And so more recently, the enemies of Christ have acquired an ally, this professing evangelical Paul Seeley, who has claimed the Bible makes scientific errors and giving ammunition to skeptics and others who want to destroy the Bible, thus feeding into the world system and giving it comfort. In some ways, Seeley is more dangerous to Christians than atheists. Although his papers are not cited in any Bible commentary I could find at the Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida, his views seem to be beloved of Christians who desire to compromise the plain teachings of Scripture with the man-made theories of evolution in billions of years. Therefore, this article is justified as pulling out this tree of misinformation by its roots. In particular, Seeley has published two papers in the Westminster Theological Journal. See, these men find entrance into Christ's house. And they publish in things as esteemed, in journals as esteemed as the theological, Westminster Theological Journal. It should not be so. Where are, the, where are those who are watching the, the wall? Where are the gatekeepers? Where are the watchers on the wall? Where, where are those who are guarding the sheep of the Lord's fold? 
So these two papers he's published claim that the Bible teaches there is a solid dome above the earth. He announces near the very start of his 1991 article the basic historical fact that defines the meaning of rakia, the Hebrew word in Genesis 1, which the King James Bible reads as firmament, but many modern translations render expanse is simply this. All peoples in the ancient world thought of the sky as solid. Now, you can read the Bible and bring your worldview into it. That's called eisegesis. And it doesn't matter what culture you're coming from or what worldview you're bringing into it. When you read the Bible and bring your worldview into it, that's eisegesis. We want exegesis. We want the truth of God coming out of the Scripture by itself, not our truth, what we suppose to be truth, coming into Scripture and twisting Scripture, forming Scripture, crafting Scripture, torturing Scripture to submit it to what we already believe to be true. Again, in every age, there are people who make that eisegetical error. In every age. But that doesn't mean that that's what the Scripture meant. That doesn't mean that at all. And so setting aside uh, James Patrick Holdings' refutation of Paul H., Seeley. And again, that article goes on at great length. I highly recommend it. Is the Rakia uh, a solid dome by James Patrick Holding? You might look that up on your own. Uh, Dr. Danny Faulkner further explains various translations of Rakia have originated and compounded the problem. The Septuagint translators chose to render Rakia as stereoma. In ancient Greek cosmology, the stereoma was the hard, transparent sphere on which stars were affixed. Again, they brought their worldview, their Greek worldview, to the Hebrew, and they wrongly translated. As the stereoma spun, it carried the sun and moon and stars across the sky. Of course, today we recognize that it's the Earth's rotation that causes this motion. In most ancient Greek cosmologies, there were other nested circles or spheres concentric with the stereoma that carried the sun, moon, and five naked eye planets, producing motions of those objects with respect to the background stars. The identification of the rakia as the stereoma probably was an attempt by the Septuagint translators to conform Scripture to the dominant cosmology of the day. Uh, that's an error, saints. The Septuagint, that's not an error in Scripture, though. That's an error in man, you must understand. That's a translation error, not an inspiration error. Vast difference. The Septuagint translation was done in Alexandria, a center of Greek thought. And so the Greek influence was strong. The same appeal to conform to current thinking exists today. For many authors interpret Genesis 1 in terms of the Big Bang model, the dominant cosmological theory of our day. In the Vulgate, Jerome chose, that's the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation, in the Vulgate, Jerome chose the Latin word firm amentum, firm amentum, to translate rakia. As one easily may surmise, we get the English word firm from the root of this word. And so Jerome's choice here again went with the idea from the Septuagint of the rakia being a hard substance. Many English translators, such as those of the King James Version, went along with Jerome by simply translating the Latin word as firmament. Thus, the idea that rakia denotes something hard persists among some creationists today. 
Dr. Danny Faulkner continues, given the reality of the way Rakia has been translated, medieval Christian and rabbinical scholars' opinions on the subject may be suspect. At the very least, they were products of the times in which they lived. Furthermore, they, like the earlier translators, may have felt compelled to conform to the cosmology of their times. Now, all this should give you a little compassion for those who compromise today. Now, not compassion that says, okay, it's no big deal, but compassion that says, I understand how it's hard to go against the flow of your culture. It's hard to go against the worldview of your culture. It's hard to go against the cosmology of your culture and to come to the Word of God and just let the Word of God speak exegetically rather than bringing your culture's so-called truth into the Bible eisegetically. Are you still with me? If you think this has been complex, you should see what I cut. (laughs) This matters, saints. It matters. We want to love God with all our minds and apply our minds. Let's get back to the text. Then God said, Genesis 1 verse 6, Then God said, Let there be a firmament, rikia, in the midst of the waters. Now, firmament is what we've translated into English. But it does not mean a hard dome, saints. It most certainly does not. Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament, get this, heaven. So what's the best understanding of what the firmament is? A hard dome? God called the firmament heaven. Ah, So it's the heavens. Now we need to figure out what the heaven is, right? But God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. Let's back up a little bit. First, verse 6, then God said, divine fiat. God speaks, it is. Then God said. Every day opens like that. Then God said. God speaks, it is. Then God said, Let there be a firmament. What is the firmament? Do we take our ancient cosmology and plug it in? Do we take our current cosmology, godless cosmology and plug it in? No, we we look for exegesis. We look in the text to see what God says the firmament is. We don't eisegete, we exegete. Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. So there's something in the midst of the waters here. It's called firmament. Let it divide the waters from the waters. We've learned something about this firmament. It divides the waters from the waters. And so we've got an earth. It's covered by waters. We're dividing the waters from the waters. Well, my mind, while not being the finest mind ever, not the sharpest tool in the shed, my mind can easily picture the waters being divided from the waters. And now we've got an ocean and we've got an atmosphere and maybe some thick clouds up there and some air in between. It's not so complex, saints. It's right there. It's just plainly stated. It's right there. And so let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters, verse 7 says, which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. God called the firmament heaven. The best tool for translation, the first tool for translation is always context. How is God using this word or these words in its immediate context? Second to that is the broader context. How has God used this word or the group of words in the context of the greater book? Beyond that, 
the entirety of God's word. How is God used? What has God spoken to on this topic? Or how has God used that particular word in the rest of Holy Scripture? But we don't have to get far. We don't have to get far. We just have to get a few verses later to see what the firmament means. God called the firmament heaven. Heaven. Now, it takes a little more explanation, but what is heaven? What is heaven, biblically speaking? And generally, we think of heaven, we think of where God dwells. And you'd be right. You'd be right if you said heaven is where God dwells. I'd say, good, Noah. Good, Nathan. Abigail, the youngest, they're gone. I'd say, good, no matter how young they were, I'd say, that's right. You know, Jesus and heaven, those are two good answers, generally speaking, right? So where, where is heaven? It's where God dwells. It's where Jesus is. You know, that, that's a Sunday school answer. That's excellent. It's true. But is it the full truth? What else does the Bible call heaven? It also calls that starry realm the heavens. And it's not just the Bible that calls it that. We call it that. Often when we're being poetic or when we're writing songs or whatnot. Uh, but the heavens, right? We'll speak of the heavens. You know what? Even Carl Sagan will speak of the heavens, the starry night, and the beauty thereof. And he'll wax very spiritual when he does it with a godless spirituality, worshiping the cosmos rather than the creator. But he'll speak of the heavens, that place where the stars dwell, space. And then, and then, something might fall and hit you in the head one day when you're out in a park. And you say, something fell from the heavens. It fell from the heavens. Are you saying that God dropped something? An angel was, you know, working on something and whoop, slipped. Oh my, down it comes. And it, it bonked off your head. It fell from the heavens. Um, again, that's maybe a little more poetic than you'd be. But if somebody was writing an article about something that occurred, they might say it fell from the heavens. Um, are they saying it came down from God? No. Are they saying it came from outer space? Not usually. Maybe if it was a comet or something they're talking about. But usually they're just saying something fell off a building. Something fell uh, from a cloud, you know, a, a very large hailstone. Something fell maybe off a plane. But they're not, they're not talking about space and they're not talking about that spiritual heavenly realm where God dwells. They're talking about this, this atmosphere, this atmosphere between the earth whether it's the, the dirt or whether it's the waters, the ocean, or the seas, between the earth and space. So there's heaven, there's heaven, and there's heaven. There's the heaven where God dwells. There's the heavenlies where the stars dwell. And there's the heavens where the birds dwell. And that is the biblical worldview of the heavens. And so when it says, and God called the firmament heaven, saints, this isn't hard. You can undo the atheist argument quite easily by simply referring them to verse 8. God called the firmament heaven. Now, it's not the heaven where God dwells, and it's not the heaven where the stars dwell. It's the heaven where the birds dwell. The Bible speaks of three heavens. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 4, please. You look there. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 4. 
This is Paul speaking, of course. It says, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Who's he talking about? Himself. And he was caught up to the third heaven. And he goes on, verse 3, And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. So he doesn't know whether he actually was physically transported to heaven or whether it was his spiritual being. He, he, He doesn't know. He's not certain. But he knows it was the third heaven where God dwells. And then he goes on to say, um, uh, verse 4, how he was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it's not lawful for man to utter. He was caught up into paradise, caught up into the third heaven, caught up to where God dwells and heard things directly from God that the Lord would not let him reveal to mankind as a whole. The third heaven, saints, where God dwells. Second, where the stars dwell. First, where the birds dwell. Genesis 1, verse 8, God called the firmament heaven. So verse 6, let there be a firmament. Let there be an atmosphere. This earth, if there's going to be a life on it, if there's going to be life on this earth, what do we need? We need an atmosphere. If God's going to create plants on day three, and he is, what's he need? Well, he doesn't actually need it. But by his design, what does he design plants to dwell in? in a place with some oxygen and some carbon dioxide and some nitrogen and maybe some other stuff, right? But those are the basics. What do animals need? Some oxygen, some nitrogen. Yeah. And they what? Breathe out carbon dioxide, which is what plants need. It's a nice design, really. But day two, the Lord created the atmosphere. He created the heavens that we would call the atmosphere. This thing that's between the earth and space where birds fly and where we stand. You know, you might be six feet above sea level, uh, standing up to your full height, breathing in that atmosphere, breathing in the heavens, so to speak. But that's what God created on day two. Not a dome over the earth. We're not taking the world's cosmology and shoving it into the Bible, whether it's an ancient cosmology or whether it's a present errant cosmology. We're receiving from the Bible the message that God is clearly giving. The God called the firmament heaven. With the few minutes we have left, consider Genesis 7 verse 11, where it says the windows of heaven were opened and what came down? The great deluge that flooded the world. Consider 1 Kings 8.27, where it says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less the temple which I have built. And so it's there saying the heaven of heavens is where God dwells. And, and the heaven, in that context, it's, it's the starry host. It's, it's the space that contains the starry host, that vast space out there. You see, the, the biblical worldview is not of a dome, surrounding the earth. It's not a geocentric worldview where there's a dome that surrounds the earth with pinpricks in it. It's saying that the heaven of heavens, this vast expanse called space where the stars dwell, can't contain you, God. And the spiritual realm, the heaven of heavens, can't contain you either. So how can I build a temple thinking it would contain you? I don't think it'll contain you. But you may well be pleased to have your presence experienced there. 
So don't let an atheist tell you what the Bible says, saints. Let God tell you what the Bible says. God is the great commentator on his own word. Let him speak. Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. That's speaking of the, the heavens, right? That starry host out there in space declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork here where the birds fly and sing and, and where the clouds move about and, and we have thunder and we have lightning and we have these dramatic events. Not so much here in Portland, it just kind of drizzles. But the rest of the United States, much of the rest of the world, you have dramatic events in the heavens. It's glorious. It's powerful. It's impressive. And God ordains it all. He controls it all. He created it all. Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. That's speaking of all of it. All of it. First, second, and third. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. He gathers all the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays the deep in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord, and let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it was done. Divine fiat. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let's close this up. The end of verse 8. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Once again, I remind you, anytime the Hebrew word yom is accompanied by a number in fact, let me say that differently. Every time the Hebrew word yom is accompanied by a number, it means a literal 24-hour day. Every time, additionally, the Hebrew word yom, which is the word for day in Hebrew, is accompanied by morning and evening, it means a literal 24-hour day. This verse, much like the preceding verse on day one, is accompanied both by a number and the morning and the evening. It is most certainly and absolutely meant to be understood by God who spoke clearly. He spoke clearly. He meant to be understood as having created the firmament on day two, a literal 24-hour day. So the evening and the morning were the second day. And all of God's saints said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.